How are you? How are you holding up? I hope you're staying well. For most of us, the sudden end of the ski season to help prevent the spread of COVID-19 was a huge bummer. For the industry itself, it was devastating. You heard Chris Diamond on the first COVID and skiing podcast. The Big Western Mountains count on that mid-March to end of season period for up to a quarter of their annual revenue. Vail said it expects to lose up to $200 million. Boyne's number is $22 million. Yes, it would have been worse had the shutdown come a month or two earlier, but the complete collapse of the economy at the exact moment that next year's past sales were ramping up is the worst possible timing for an industry that counts on that revenue to survive until next winter. This is where the National Skiers Association, the NSAA, comes in. Now, you may not be familiar with the NSAA, but this is the primary trade organization for the United States ski industry. They operate mostly out of sight of the skiing public, and most of us probably don't think about them very often. But their work is crucial, especially at times like this. Because what they're doing right now is working with Congress to make sure that some of the trillions of dollars in aid that they're doling out goes to shore up the ski industry. By all accounts, the NSAA has been very on top of this, and I wanted to get a better understanding of what they were prioritizing and what ski areas large and small could expect, both out of the package that Congress just passed and out of additional relief bills that they may pass in coming months. The best person to speak to this was the head of the whole operation, Kelly Pollack. She generously gave me some time last week to go through the NSAA's efforts as well as some of her views on the state of the industry in light of this crisis. Let's hear it. Kelly Pollack is the president and CEO of the National Ski Areas Association, the trade association for U.S. ski area owners and operators. The NSAA represents more than 300 alpine resorts that account for more than 90% of skier and snowboarder visits nationwide. The NSAA also represents 400 suppliers of equipment, goods, and services to the mountain resort industry. Pollack was general manager of Mount Snow from 2005 until 2017. Kelly, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it, Stuart. You're welcome. First of all, curious how you're holding up personally during all of this. I understand you're out in Colorado. Um, how's, how's everything out there? What's the atmosphere like? How are you doing? Thank you for asking. Um, I personally, uh, I'm doing fine. Um, yeah, our office is in Lakewood, Colorado. We can, I can see uh, Denver from my office. And we have about 13 staff members here. We've been working remotely for a few weeks now. It's going pretty well. Um, I would say that we have the same problems as everybody else that we talk to. Um, you know, one moment you're laser focused and the next minute you're kind of like, not can't remember what you were you were working on and time is moving at a very slow pace but otherwise we're all healthy and and really happy about that and and happy that we're very busy trying to you know find some answers for our members yeah and you've had a little bit of time to absorb the shock of the sudden shutdown of basically the entire north american ski industry in the space of four days from March 12th to 15th. And there were a few stragglers after that, but my understanding is that everyone is closed at this point. Your your Director of Regulatory Affairs, Dave Bird, told the Colorado Sun that he estimates that U.S. scarers could collectively lose up to $2 billion as a result of this shutdown. Can you help us understand the factors driving that huge total beyond the immediate loss of late season revenue? So with millions of people out of work now, 
revenue from, for example, lost season pass sales, uh, maybe even early bookings for next season. All of that is likely to be down substantially. What do we need to be thinking about here when we try to understand the totality of what ski areas are up against financially? Right. Well, well, you hit on, on a lot of the very important points. And, you know, overall, people think that ski areas close in the spring and, and we're done. And, and, and that's not the way it is. So what we're trying to do by p- pulling that $2 billion number together is, is really illustrate what goes on in the ski industry. So, you know, we, we do a lot of uh, research. So we have a ton of historical data, which enabled us to model this out. Overall, we estimate that we're going to see about a 15% decrease in total revenue, and that's taken basically March 15th until the closing of the season. Now, there are ski areas that are losing 30% of their season, but overall, mm-hmm. everything I'm going to talk about today is total U.S. We expect summer sales to be down, so that's part of it along with advanced bookings for things like seasons passes. We already have evidence from our members uh, that they're suffering significant impact to pre-seasons pass sales. And that's important because if you can get some people to pre-commit, that is good cash flow uh, for the summer when cash flow is is normally uh, much reduced. We also have members telling us that they have had to cancel many conferences, weddings, and, and events. And in addition to that, to that two billion, there's all of the cutbacks on capital projects. So mm-hmm. you have this strong ripple effect in the community. Uh, your local tradespeople—they're not being hired. Not to mention our ski industry suppliers. Uh, whether you be a chairlift manufacturer or you provide software, the average U.S. ski area invests about seventeen dollars per skier visit. So when you go and you mm-hmm. buy a lift ticket or you know you buy your season's pass, each time you go skiing. is going into a bucket, and that's being reinvested in capital. So I think those are the things that people may not realize when they just think ski area. Right, and you you refer to the summer business there, and and so you're not only talking about past revenue, you're talking about you mentioned weddings and conferences, and and a lot of these ski areas have spent the last several years building out things like bike parks and, um, you know, the... uh, what do you call them, those aerial tree sort of adventure zones and zip lines and things like that. How big of a a part of the industry or how important has that become to the industry and how important is it that they are able to get back to that as the weather turns warm here and hopefully we beat this thing? It is super important. And again, it depends on on the ski area. There are some ski areas, few, but there are some that don't have summer operations. But for instance, one of our members um, down in Tennessee over Gatlinburg their business model is just as strong in the summer as it is in the winter. They need to get back to their summer business or they'll lose half of their season. The same is uh, true with one of our members um, up in Michigan, Crystal. 50 50 50% of, of their revenue comes for summer and 50% comes wow. from winter. And 50% of their staff members work in the summer. So they need to get mm-hmm. them back working. So on Friday, Congress passed a $2 trillion economic relief package that included help both for the workers that you just mentioned and for large corporations and for small businesses. Have you had time to dig into this relief bill to see what sort of aid the ski industry may be eligible for? And, and that's going from your big publicly traded Vail 
to Altera, also a big company, not publicly traded, down to the small family or community-owned local hills that are part of these communities. Right. Yeah. That that is exactly what we've been doing prior to it being passed. Just knowing what uh, we thought it was going to be, and then dissecting it uh, when it was passed on Friday. So the Corona virus aid relief and economic security act cares um there are there are parts um that will benefit both the small and the large multi-resort companies you know i think most americans are are keyed in on the individual relief that relief for the staff at our ski areas uh those the, the checks that all heard about um but there's also an an unemployment piece which will layer on additional unemployment benefits we're digging in and trying to understand those so we can deliver that information accurately to our membership i I think that the important thing to understand with all of this is this act was pushed through quickly and and we're Mm. very very grateful for that but what happens is then you have to understand and, and some of the regulations and the definitions come later and, and that's what we're facing right now. It's so frustrating for our members. An example would be the small business loans and grants. There's one called the Paycheck Prote- Protection Program, PPP, and these are loans that you can take out and then you can't, they can be forgiven as long as there's a payroll-based employee retention. They're trying to get us to hold on to our staff. So we're trying to get definition from the Small Business Administration on that, and it just isn't there yet. So it's really tough for skiers. They want to go and they want to apply for these um, loans. You can start tomorrow on the 3rd, but they really aren't even sure if it's going to apply to them because of the way the language is. It's it's written more for a year-round business than a seasonal business, especially a winter seasonal business. So we are pushing hard with the SBA to further define and give us guidance that will be beneficial to our members so they can take advantage of that. So that's one. And then the other one is called the um, EIDL, the Economic Industry Disaster Loan. And that's basically where a small business can apply for a grant. It's basically emergency money, and you get this grant of $10,000. But again, we need to know if we, if our ski areas fall into that category, uh, and we need those definitions defined. So that is the absolute number one thing that we're working on right now. That's really interesting. So you're saying the bill is passed, it's hundreds of pages long, but yet it's lacking some very key details as far as who is actually eligible for this aid. And there's actually, it was another question I had for you was, you know, this is a very unique situation, right? You have basically the entire economy shutting down at the same time. So it feels like certain industries may get overlooked, especially seasonal ones, as you're saying. And so it sounds like what you're saying is you're not sure yet what applies and you won't be for a while until the next layer of the bureaucracy goes and defines that and says, okay, this is what this type of business is eligible for? Well, not necessarily. Um, We don't think we have to wait till phase four. Uh, Phase four could bring more relief because as you, I mean, you, you hit on a key point, everybody, Everybody's shut down. So imagine how many businesses are applying for these loans. I'm assuming they're going to run out of money quickly, which is why our ski areas want to go and apply immediately. But everybody's going to be doing the same thing. So they may have to refund these 
I'm not really sure. What we're hearing is that the Small Business Administration, they're actually working on those definitions. They're being inundated. Uh, we're one of the people in line saying, hey, this is what the ski industry needs. Don't forget to think about seasonal employers. Uh, and they're like, okay, you know, you're in line. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to get to you. Uh, some of these decisions may be rolling just based on, on the amount of feedback they're getting. So we're hopeful and we're there and uh, we have really good reasoning as to why they should change some of the definitions or write some that um, apply to ski areas. But we, we do have to be a little bit patient. So it sounds like in some ways there is some fairly clear aid available for small businesses, which is over half of the ski areas in the United States, from my understanding. What about the larger conglomerates, Vail, Altera, Powder, Boyne, or even some of these larger independents like Jackson Hole that, that may not qualify as a small business? Is there anything available for them or is that still to be determined? Um, that's going to be the, the relief that's going to apply to them is going to be the relief that um, is for their staff members, that the, the individual check that their staff are going to uh, receive and also the unemployment, the um, additional unemployment insurance. So that should help their staff members. But no, it's, it's, it's not like they have the same access to these um, small business loans and grants. So there is talk of another relief bill that should closely follow this one through Congress. Have you outlined any goals for that legislation, what you'd like to see for your ski areas, large and small, in, in that bill if it happens? Well, we've outlined them and then scratched that and gone back and outlined them again. And uh, as we all know, it's changing every day. And, and um, with Congress on break, phase four, what we're doing is we're really taking our time to determine our best strategy. And we're super focused on trying to get the small business stuff worked out. So it's almost a blessing that we have little time. But uh, we're talking with our members. We are also spending a lot of time talking with our state and regional ski associations. They've been tremendously helpful um, during this process. You know, what we do know are that skiers are, are significantly affected. We're an industry that needs attention. We need to help to retain our employees, recover from these impacts. We need to support our rural com communities. That's essential. So we're going to figure out the best approach and, and then go in with a strong case for specific ski industry relief. And we're hopeful that that's the type of relief that could aid some of our medium and larger size skiers that do not fall into the small business category. It seems like there's kind of a trap here that you have to try to avoid in that it, the shutdown really happened the weekend of March 14th, 15th. I think your average person who doesn't ski or maybe just skis a little bit probably thinks that's the end of ski season. Whereas a lot of people who are doing it are going into April, May, even June, July in some areas of the country. And, and I realize that there's not a ton of business at that very tail end. But, you know, in losing March, you lose a, a substantial amount of quite profitable weeks. So so how, what's the challenge there? And as you talk to Congress, helping them to understand the ski industry took a big hit here. It's not just losing a couple of weeks at the end of the season. It's losing a significant percentage of revenue and it's impacting these revenue drivers uh, for next season, like the, the past sales you referred to earlier. Right, exactly. And, you know, it, it's, it's talking about that $2 billion revenue loss that we've calculated. You know, luckily, we've been working 
with Congress forever <laughs> on so many issues. So we do have great allies on both sides of the aisle. And uh, we have long-standing relationship. The fact that we're major employers and especially in rural areas, they make us a key stakeholder in many ski states. So, you know, I, I like to talk about how many, how many jobs, 964,000 jobs. That's how many jobs ski areas support. And a lot of people are like, really? I had no idea. We're a $55 billion tourism-related revenue industry. So you just have to keep driving home those numbers. And and most senators and congressmen and women, they want to know how the ski areas have been impacted. So whenever possible, we get the ski areas to tell the story. Uh, that's what really drives home the message. And in going back to the rural communities, the trickle-down effect is enormous. I know that you get it. But I, I don't know if you've seen this, but I've seen dozens of interviews with like ski town entrepreneurs who have talked about the mountain as their livelihood, mm-hmm. like it's a ghost town. And so that trickle down effect, it's, it's huge. It's a tremendous back and forth. The small businesses rely on the skiers to bring the customers, but the skiers also rely on those small businesses to supply the goods and services to the folks who come up on a ski trip. So they both they both have to be successful, and it, it, we're in a really tricky um, time right now where, where both the ski areas and all of those communities um, are just kind of holding their breath to see what's going to happen. Well, it sounds like you have some allies in Congress that get it, and, and I'll admit, when I was reading about your lobbying efforts in Congress for this recently passed relief bill. It's the first time I heard of the Congressional Ski and Snowboard Caucus, which I'm sure is very familiar to you, but I'm not I'm not usually in the mindset of exploring legislation and skiing. So um, so this was a surprise to me. What can you tell us about who is in this group, what its primary function is, and how you work with them to tilt legislation in favor of the ski industry? Right. They've actually, the Ski and Snowboard Caucus, they've been around for about a decade, and they're comprised of House members who have ski areas in their districts. Some are, e- are even skiers and snowboarders themselves. They're, they're a bipartisan education forum, and they keep members of Congress informed about trends in the ski er- industry and those policy issues that can affect us. So we've been working with them for a very long time, and, and, and it's, it's a, a key part of getting things done in, in D.C. And that's a, a House of Representatives group? There's no senators in that, or is it a, a, a both houses? It, no, it's it's House members. So Representative Scott Tipton um, from Colorado and Annie and Annie Custer from New Hampshire. They're the co-chairs. Annie's a ski. And there's, and there's 37 states with ski areas in them. Does that sound right? I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you got me on that that's one. Am I, 32 or 37, you're probably right. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that's, that's the number I, I seem to remember seeing. But it also changes because, you know, Georgia used to have one and now they don't. So there, there's things like that that change the numbers over time and like scramble up my brain. Um, back to capital investment for a moment. You mentioned that earlier as, as something that you want to maintain. Yesterday, Vail announced that it was canceling its capital investments for the rest of the year. This was after they announced last week that they expected to lose as much as $200 million in revenue from cutting their season short. How important is it both for local communities where a lot of the labor comes from for these capital projects uh, and for larger companies like say Doppelmeyer, the lift manufacturer, that these relief bills somewhere in there include some sort of help to continue capital upgrades like new lifts, new lodges, right? So you have the workers kind of covered in this phase one, 
you know, is that imperative in phase two? Are you trying to say, hey, we need to keep keep this development going as well because that's a huge part of this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Loans for capital investment definitely on our on our short list. Um, just going back, and I might not have heard you correctly, but the way I understood the Vale announcement is that they were cutting back substantially on their capital, but they were still going to continue with maintenance capital, but not like expansion capital. I, I believe the number was over. Eighty million, but um, I don't have wow. that in front of me. I just wanted to make sure that people. I'm sure you're right. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah. that they are still um, uh, going to do capital, and that's an, an excellent example. Often, when you have a bad ski season, you know we've never had something like this, so this is this is unprecedented. But you will do that. You'll be like, okay, I'm going to do my maintenance capital, which means I'm going to put a roof on that building. I'm going to, you know, do this. I'm going to do that. That boiler has to be replaced. Nobody ever sees any of that stuff. It's mm-hmm. so disappointing to just put millions of dollars into that stuff when the skiers and the riders want things like new lifts and and mm-hmm. uh, direct-to-lift access gates and things like that. But that's what you have to do in tough times. And the really hard part is that the following year, <laughs> you've still got that same list that you needed the year before plus all the new stuff. So you mm-hmm. always want to be reinvesting consistently. And years like this set us back. We'll, we'll get over it and, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll get back on track, but it is going to take a few years. And for some ski areas, it takes a really long time to recover from something like this. So it, it's a really, it's a hard thing to hear that companies like Doppelmayr and Palma are, are losing contracts, um, but I totally understand that the hard, hard decisions that ski areas are making right now. So in addition to relief from Congress, there's another kind of potential relief here for certain ski areas that operate on federal land. Colorado Senator Cory Gardner is working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to try to convince them to waive some of these fees for this season or next. So, so by that, I mean a, a substantial number, and maybe you have a, a roundabout estimate, of, of U.S. skiers sit on federal land and they pay a fee to lease that land every year and operate their ski area. So what can you tell us about how those fees work and, and what the odds are that they could be waived in this instance? Right. Yeah. So um, we have 122 ski areas on on public lands. So there's wow. quite a few of them. Yeah, about a third and large. So in your neck of the woods, say, for instance, Sugarbush, if you go and you buy a lift ticket, a little bit of that is, is going to pay your fees to the U.S. Treasury. It's based on revenues. And we so appreciate Senator Gardner's ongoing effort to help us with all of our efforts in the industry. And, and yes, he has suggested that waiving our ski fees on a temporary basis, that would help us direct funds, help with that cash flow, help retain those employees and those needed capital improvements. So we're hopeful that Senator Gardner and, and the Ski Caucus and all of our allies will help us with some relief here in, in waiving the fees. Is there any precedent for that, for either either waiving or lowering the fees in difficult times, like uh, the financial crisis 2008, for example? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I honestly don't know the answer to that because I wasn't in this seat then. I was back at Mount Snow. So that would be a question I would I'd want to find the answer to. But I think the answer is no. I think that this would be a first. And right now, 
NSAA, we're focused on just deferring the fees. So giving our members relief to pay them a little later. So when the cash flow is stronger, when they reopen, they'd be able to pay the fees. And, and we're working with um, the Forest Service right now on that, and we hope that we'll have success in that area. And that's a, a great first step. So when talking about additional aid, I, I asked that same question about what would you like to see in the next round of, of federal relief? I asked it to Borne Resort CEO Stephen Kircher when he was on the show earlier in the week, on the podcast earlier this week. And and his big concern was business interruption insurance. And much to everyone's surprise, they discovered recently that these policies don't cover pandemics. So we talked extensively about this. Is, is this something that you see changing now that the entire industry has been upended all at once by this pandemic? Yeah, if you're asking whether there'll be any language um, in what we recommend for the phase four, that isn't something that we were considering. However, uh, business interruption insurance has been um, a, an ongoing topic. I agree with Stephen. It was a surprise to so many of our ski areas. And I, I really think that ski areas, like all businesses, it's not just the ski industry, they're going to be addressing pandemics in their contracts in the future, You know, whether it relates to insurance, liability, or special events. It's going to be something that everybody's going to be paying very close attention to. So in the immediate term, one of the first possible casualties of this whole thing was Ski Blandford, a small ski area in Massachusetts. It became the first ski area in the Northeast to announce that it will not reopen for the 2020 to 21 season. The owners did not specifically blame the fallout of COVID-19 as a catalyst for this, but it's hard to think it wasn't a factor is there any fear within the NSAA or within the larger community that small ski areas will have a harder than usual time recovering from this? Um, have you ever skied Blanford? I have not. I haven't either. Yeah. I was kind of, when I was reading that uh, release, I was, I was wishing that I had uh, skied it before. Absolutely. You definitely, whether you have a poor snow year uh, or two in a row or anything like this, you always fear that if a ski area is vulnerable going in, that they're going to be the ones that are going to have the hardest time recovering. And it sounds like in the case of Blanford that um, Butternut, you know, really went in there and, and tried to bring it back with with capital investment and, and other things. Again, I've never skied it before, but yeah, we, we fear that we could lose some ski areas and, and time will tell. I mean, the sooner we can get reopened, the better, but that is just a totally, we don't have, nobody has a, a time frame on this. That's what makes it so frustrating. Yeah, curious about your opinion on the model of a Scotney in Vermont. So so that was, as, as I'm sure you know, a, once a much larger ski area. Now it's a community run area with a, uh, a rope tow and they put in a new T-bar this year. Not a new T-bar, but a new, new for them T-bar. So it's, it's mostly volunteer run. It's sort of used as a community asset. Do you think that that's, the future for these small ski areas like Ski Blanford that are not able to operate as as a profitable enterprise, but maybe as a community asset, if the community support is there, that that's the direction that um, that we should encourage them to go in. Well, it really does depend on that community, and I have in in my role at at NSAA, um, I've been able to visit some of these community-run, nonprofit type ski areas, and there are some 
just really great examples out there. So if the community gets behind it, there's absolute hope that it can work. There's different ways to run a ski area rather than privately or publicly owned. That's that's what I'm learning. Um, and some of the models out there are, are quite successful. So that could happen, but sometimes they close and as we all know, uh, you know, the grass just grows, the trees grow, and, and it, it just doesn't work. I mean, I was at Mount Snow for 30-something years, and during wow. that time, we purchased and owned Haystack. I was very involved at the time in working at Haystack. I mean, uh, I wanted that ski area to be successful. And in the end, in 2005, Mount Snow sold Haystack because it, it just was not making any money. Mount Snow had to subsidize it, and, and ownership decided that was not a situation they wanted to be in. Now, could have they tried some other things like your suggestion? Maybe, but sometimes just location alone is is um, a detractor for, for a ski area. And Haystack being so close to Mount Snow, all it got was kind of the overflow and and, and some people who were re- really loyal to it, but it wasn't enough to pay the bills at the end of the day. So I know that there are a lot of factors out there and a lot of people will try to just say, you know, it's because of the coronavirus, but you really have to look at the big picture and, and what's been going on with that ski area. And I'm sure that's what a lot of these small communities do. They they sit around a table and they say, how can we bring this back? And and mm-hmm. um, I, I think there's hope for it, but I just don't know the Blandford um, scenario enough to, to speculate. Yeah, it sounds like a very similar situation to what you're describing as Mount Snow because you have the larger, busier ski area, in this case, Butternut, subsidizing the smaller, less busy, less known ski area. And, and hopefully they can find a way to make it work because it's a historic area. It's been open since the 30s. Um, so hopefully there's a future for that and hopefully a future for Haystack, which is now Hermitage Club, which is now uh, under new ownership, which is part of the old ownership. So um, it's we'll, we'll see how that works out. At least they still have that lift on the mountain, right? So they can uh, they can get that spinning again soon. You, so you also had to cancel your annual NSA trade show and convention for the first time in 58 years. That event was scheduled to take place May 4th to 7th in Amelia Island, Florida. Uh, take us through your decision to cancel that event. When did you start thinking about that, and what finally drove you to make the make it official? Yeah, we started thinking about canceling the event uh, mid May and uh, mid May, um, mid March, um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that's Still a crazy. couple years ago, right? Right, exactly. Um, you know, the decision for uh, of canceling that event for us mostly came from just sitting back paying attention to what was going on around us, looking at government recommendations and orders, and it just became clear that we were not going to be able to have that event. Things were, were just moving so fast. So it was difficult, but, uh, you know, it's, it's what you have to do. So we canceled it, and um, now we're really focused on bringing as much content virtually to our membership. Um, what What is going on is spring and summer and fall is the time when ski industry folks really focus on a lot of education, everything from from lift maintenance and safety to leadership training and a bunch of these regional events where 
ski area staff members go and, and, and get this training have been canceled. So what we're trying to do is just take some of this content and, and deliver it to our membership uh, virtually. And then for any of these regional shows that are still going to happen in the fall, uh, we'll just try to help them with a little extra content. It sounds like you're pivoting with the rest of us to just try and figure out, okay, all of a sudden I have to become a master of the online presentation and the video conference and everything else. So Exactly. We're not masters yet, but hopefully we're going to yeah. get there. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Uh, well, last week I had Chris Diamond on the podcast. I'm sure you know Mr. Diamond from your time at Mount Snow. I, he was my boss. Okay. <laughs> so he, he's he's also the author of, of Ski Inc. and Ski Inc. 2020. So he's on the show and, and, and he, as I'm sure you know, has a very optimistic view of the ski industry and in that he maintained that in this case. Uh, he, he said, you know, the ski industry is very resilient. Skiers are passionate, they're loyal, and the industry would bounce back. How are you feeling about the industry as a whole and its ability to persevere through this enormous system shock? Yeah, I, I did listen to that podcast. And overall, I, I really have the same optimism that, that Chris shared. That being said, <laughs> there is great concern for the staff, which we've talked about at the ski areas, and just helping our members through this time. There's some members that I've talked to that, you know, you hang up and you just, you know, you're heartbroken. It, it's really real and it it sucks. <laughs> if if we can, if skiers can, can reopen in a reasonable time and get staff back to work, I believe that uh, that bounce back that Chris is talking about could, could happen pretty fast. But with so many unknowns at this point, the, the next several months are going to be tricky. Um, they're going to be extremely challenging. Skiers are going to have to make some some hard choices. I do know that the resort leadership is is using this time to figure out the best strategies from, for moving forward. You know, we're learning a lot right now. A, a lot of, you know, your, your comment about Stephen and, and the business interruption insurance. They're going to make us better operators in the future. It's just so unfortunate that, that we're all living through through this event. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing everything you can to help them all get through it. So keep up the great work. I really can't thank you enough for your time today, Kelly. I'm sorry I kept you a few minutes longer than I promised. Uh, but but when this all blows over, we'd love to have you back on and, and talk a little more about the all the great things going on in the industry. Absolutely, Stuart. Be well. Take care. Hopefully we'll meet on the slopes. Absolutely. Would love that. All right. Take care, Kelly. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Kelly Pollack, NSAA President and CEO. U.S. ski areas are very lucky to have the NSAA, and the NSAA is very lucky to have her in charge. This is going to be a very tough year for the ski industry, but the NSAA is doing everything it can to make sure skiing gets what it needs to get the lift spinning for us again in the fall. Thank you very much for that, Kelly, and good luck to you with all of this. I'm not done with COVID-19 and skiing podcasts just yet. There's a few more angles I'd like to hit, so I'll have more coming. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com to hear new episodes as soon as they're live. That is free. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.